on that last uh, uh, screenshot of uh, people not coming back to church, that is a, a problem, obviously. But I think what you have to realize what's going on with the church is that God is separating the wheat and the chaff. He's separating Laodicea, separating worldly. And if, if the lockdown scared people from coming back to church, then God is showing you something. And I think what's going to happen continually is we're going to go through more episodes of different things, more challenges to the church that's going to be brought to the front door of the church. And I think it will continue to separate people in the church where people will just stop, stop coming. But again, what is the point? God is showing something. He's taking the cover off of the church and saying, this is the reality of what's going on here. And I'm going to put heat on the church. I'm going to pressure the church. And I will show you what people are made out of and what they're not. And so that, that doesn't shock me. Uh, and I think more is to come. The second thing I wanted to note on the prophecy update is this about Israel. It talked about them doing kinds of, uh, kinds of deals and stuff and agreements with Arab countries. Rest assured that they're going to turn on Israel like a sheep-killing dog, okay? Um, we know that prophetically, but we also know that these Arab countries, they don't want to talk about it, are ran by Islam, and Islam allows them to lie in negotiations, and it's called taqiyah, so you never get a straight answer from them. You can make deals with them all you want, but at the end of the day, their, their religion allows them to lie. And so I just know prophetically where this is going. Israel's leadership is leftist now, okay? They, they got Benjamin Netanyahu out of there, and they have a bunch of leftists, and these leftists can't spot evil, they're naive to evil. And I think that's the problem with the naivety of the left is they can't spot evil. And so they think they can negotiate, we can sit down and have tea and we'll work things out. No, you can't because their religion allows them to lie to you and does it for a reason. What does Islam want to do to Israel? Wipe them out from being a people. Push them into Mediterranean so they don't exist. That's the bottom line. And so continue to pray for Israel. Its leadership is horrible, but pray for them that some of them wake up to all of this and get saved and uh, be able to be raptured before all this goes down with them. Anyway, <clears throat> this segues into what we're going to talk about today in Daniel chapter 5. This is a third part in the writing on the wall, and we're actually going to decipher the writing on the wall and the implications for us personally in our lives and the idea of the handwriting on the wall basically says it's over for Belshazzar. It's over for Babylon at that period of time. And um, what we have to take away from all of this is, what is the handwriting right now on the wall for us? What, what is God trying to say not only to us as Americans, but as you know, citizens of our county? Uh, and what is he trying to say to us personally? When people use the phrase handwriting on the wall, um, it, sometimes they use a negative or a positive connotation. But when you see it from Scripture, it's always a negative connotation. And it always means something's about to end. Something is about to, to, to change on you. So biblically, the biblical principle is when you see the handwriting on the wall, something is ending and a new beginning is starting. Okay? The key in all of this is whether or not you and I will adjust to what is changing. And here's the thing. 
a lot of us avoid. We see the handwriting on the wall, we know we got to move over here, and we're stuck here. And, and why do we get stuck? Well, it could be a number of reasons. Maybe we're afraid of the unknown. I get that. We're afraid of the unknown, so we don't go forward. Maybe it's nostalgia. Well, I like this season of my life here, and I had some good times, and I don't want to leave it. Yeah, that time's over, though. God is saying it's over, and we're moving to a different season of life. Sometimes it's family dynamics. The people in our family hold us back many times. Well, if I say this, I know I'm going to tick everyone off. I know if I do this, I'm going to be the black sheep of the family. If I confront this, they're all going to be mad at me. So that holds a lot of people back. Security holds a lot of people back. Our quest for security on our own becomes a major dominant problem that doesn't allow us to move from season to season. We get stuck. We don't, we don't move on. And I guess fear would be the other thing I would say. People are afraid. They know the implications. They see the handwriting in the wall and they know they've got to move on to this next season, but they go into protest mode. They go in and then when they protest, they go in denial. They're like, no, it's not happening. This is not happening. And we're going to talk about that today. Things are happening. The handwriting is on the wall. And you and I as Christians have to interpret it properly for what? So we can be scared to death? No. The principle about the handwriting on the wall is you must let things go and move to the new season because the bad needs to end for the good to happen. God wants to do something good through you. And the only way you can get there is let go of the old season and move on. So out of ending, good can come. And that's what you have to keep in mind. We're going to talk more about that on a personal level in the application. We're going to see it from Belshazzar and Daniel. Now, let's bring you up to speed a little bit. The handwriting in the wall has appeared before Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, okay? And so he is in his pride, uh, taking the instruments and cups and bowls from the temple, uh, the Jewish temple, and now using them in this festive orgy, whatever you want to call it, and desecrating the holy items that are in Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar took those, those items when he sacked Israel, but he, he left them alone. But now his grandson is now having a party with them. It's, 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 a, it's sacrilege, no doubt about it. And this grandson of Nebuchadnezzar has not learned any lessons from history. He has not looked at what happened to his grandfather. He is an arrogant leader. He thinks he's self-made. He thinks no one can stop him. He thinks the walls of Babylon are impregnable. And he is surrounded currently at this point by the Medes and Persians outside the gates. He thinks that the walls of Babylon will protect them. The walls of Babylon could seat four chariots across. They were impregnable. He thinks that's saving him. He thinks the false gods that he worships of the Babylonians are going to save him from what's about to happen. He's going to have a new realization come to him because of his arrogance. It starts out like this. This is Daniel now being brought in to explain the handwriting on the wall because the Magi couldn't explain it. The world cannot explain the handwriting on the wall. Only believers can. Don't ever forget that. You have inside information from God and you can read the handwriting on the wall. They can't. 
They can't see it. And that's the principle why Daniel has to be brought in. So here's what he says. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your grandfather, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. So the first thing he says, look, Belshazzar, you must understand this. Your grandfather was given his kingdom by God. He was not a self-made man. Yes, I know your grandfather fought in battles, but at the end of the day, it is God who handed him over the Babylonian kingdom and made him who he is. And don't forget that, Belshazzar, because you think you're self-made. See, the core behind all of this in the world leaders that you see, they all think they're self-made. They all think they got there on their own. And what they will see is God is the only one that, can, that allows who's on the throne and who isn't. It brings for free will in it, no doubt about it. But as God is the controller of things. Daniel will say to Belshazzar later in the text, you fool, the very breath that you take in and out comes from God. You couldn't be alive unless God sustained you. But he can't see that. And that's how the global world is like today. So he goes, look, and because of the majesty that he gave him, all people's languages and trembled and feared before him. He had absolute authority. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whoever he wished, he put down. It wasn't because of him. It was because God allowed this. But when his heart was lifted up, notice the key phrase, his heart becomes lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride. It actually should be resulted in pride. Now, this is a key understanding. Now, now, what's the point here? How does someone get a hard heart and then it result in pride? Because that's what it's saying. Well, it results based on the context and based on even Satan's fall when people fall in love with themselves. What do you mean? When you take what God has given you and you don't give credit to God, you don't bow a knee before him saying, all that I have comes from him, even my own life. What will happen is you will reject that and say, no, I made myself this way. I am like I am. And I'm a self-made person. And therefore, that's what starts hardening the heart of the person and then leads to pride. In the fall of Satan, Satan was maxed out on his blueprint, it says, which means he was the most beautiful and most wisest of all the creatures God has ever made. And, and the way the Hebrew says he's maxed out according to his blueprint, maxed out. That maxing out caused him to look at himself as saying, this all came because of me. I'm, I'm like I am because of me. I somehow evolved to be like this. It's because of me. He stopped acknowledging that God is the one who gave him wisdom and beauty. And when he did that, his heart become, became hard, and then it fostered into pride, and that pride made him rebel. That's how it works. It's like when we talk about the chicken and egg, what came first, hardening of heart comes first, and then pride ends up destroying the person. That's how it works. That's what's happened to Belshazzar. That's what's happening in the world today. These globalists like Bill Gates and George Soros think they're self-made. And because of that, they think they're a God that's gonna tell all of us what to do. And by the way, they, they forget where they came from. They forget that God can humble them. Like he did Nebuchadnezzar. Look what he did to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel goes, and then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like beasts, and his dwelling was the wild donkeys. 
they fed him with grass like oxen and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until, until what? Until what? He knew that the most high God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. That's, how God, that's what got Nebuchadnezzar from being disciplined is he acknowledged that God rules. Once he did that, he was put back on his pa- uh, throne and in his palace. That's what Nebuchadnezzar refuses to do and that's what this world is refusing to do. They will not acknowledge that God rules. They won't. And so guess what? So this week, a demonstration of them not bowing a knee to God and shaking their fists to God happened this week. The World Summit happened this week and all the globalists were there talking about a new world order, talking about a digital currency, talking about how America uh, is, is not a fit anymore in leading the world anymore that something new has to happen to lead the world, which is a global government is what they're basically implying. Now, it's, it's not a conspiracy anymore. It's happening. So what's the handwriting on the wall? The handwriting on the wall is God is allowing this. That's what you have to acknowledge. Just like when you look at Biden. Yeah, they stole the election. I get it. But why? Why is God allowing that? Because I think Biden is a a disciplining hand, he's being used to discipline America. Why? Because we don't bow a knee to God anymore. Now, you and I do, but the rest of the people in this country refuse to bow a knee. And how do I know that? I look at their morality. Their morality tells me. So you want, it's not a conspiracy anymore. Look at the handwriting on the wall. Listen closely to what they say. Are we ready for a new world order? And now is a time when things are shifting. We're going to, there's going to be a new world order out there. And we've got to lead it. And we've got to unite the rest of the free world in doing it. Because I believe what is clear is that we have hit an inflection point. I think this presents us with some significant opportunities to make some real changes. You know, we are at an inflection point, I believe, in the world economy, not just the world economy, in the world. And just as the world reemerges from the pandemic, we are faced with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which certainly feels like a transformative geopolitical moment. Coming as that does against a backdrop of great power struggles, the emergence of middle powers, of climate crisis, and cybersecurity challenges, the trend lines certainly seem to indicate a world headed in a disorderly direction. Is the US-led multilateral system created post-World War II to manage international relations so that the world would never again see and experience the same chaos and disorder of a world war. Is it anything like fit for purpose? And if not, what is the alternative? That is the purpose of this discussion today, so let's get on with it. Your Excellency, are you ready for a new world order? Uh, the frame of thinking is still 19th century. I think this is one of the problems that we have in the international system. Where if you look, we are still 
It's still about nationalism. It's still about state sovereignty. And I think this is one of the major, major issues as uh, we try to uh, to bridge really what is mentally, uh, you know, governing international relations with the 19th century mode of thinking. To define a longer term narrative to make the world more resilient, more inclusive and more sustainable. We tend to forget that we are in the midst of the fourth industrial revolution, which accelerates global change in much more comprehensive and faster ways than the previous three revolutions. The objective is to quickly recognize the potential of new technologies, as well as develop the necessary ethical and political frameworks around those new technologies. The world has to overcome not only the damage done to our economies and our societies by COVID-19, it also has to confront the repercussions of a dangerous clash between major global powers. History is truly at a turning point. We do not yet know the full extent and the systemic and structural changes which will happen. However, we do know that global energy systems, food systems and supply chains will be deeply affected. In times of crisis, the role of governments is more important and more relevant than ever. What is also needed is a summit like this one to go beyond crisis management and to look into constructive ways we can build our common future. Our futures are intrinsically connected to one another as profound challenges to mankind such as climate change are globally interconnected and require collaborative responses. We have to uphold our responsibility, which we have towards the next generation, and which we can only fulfill through collaboration on a national and on a global level. What underpins a world order is always the financial system. And what we're seeing in the world today, I think, is we are on the brink of a dramatic change where we are about to, and I'll say this boldly, we're about to abandon the traditional system of money and accounting and introduce a new one. And the new one, the new accounting, is what we call blockchain. It means digital. It means having a almost perfect record of every single transaction that happens in the economy, which will give us far greater clarity over what's going on. It also raises huge dangers in terms of the balance of power between states and citizens. This new money will be sovereign in nature. Most people think that digital money is crypto and private, but what I see are superpowers introducing digital currency. The Chinese were the first. The U.S. is on the brink, I think, of moving in the same direction. The Europeans have committed to that as well. Okay, so you just heard from their mouth. What is God saying? What does the handwriting on the wall say? This is going down. And it's also saying this, something is ending. Remember, the handwriting on the wall always says something is about to end and a new season is beginning. What is ending? 
She just, they just said. The, the way of our currency is ending. The way of governments are ending. They're basically implying that America doesn't need to be the policeman anymore. It needs to be the global government now. We, it, uh, America doesn't have the right fit, she used a word. America doesn't fit into that. We're now moving from America leading out to global government leading out. Something's ending. That's the message, you see? What is God saying? That, he's saying that. Daniel goes on. He says, but you, Belshazzar, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your, your heart. So you have known all of this and you arrogantly stick your fist in the, toward God. You, you know what God has said. You know the predictions of Daniel. Daniel 7 and 8 have already happened, by the way, as far as the timeline in his predictions. So Belshazzar is aware of what God has said about this. He also knows that one day Babylon will end. He knows this stuff. But instead of humbling his heart, he shakes his fist of God and opposes God. Do we see this today in our society? Of course we do. We got a Supreme Court nominee that can't define what a woman is, even though, does she know she's a woman? Does she even know? Okay, see, what's happening here, when these people can't define what a woman is, they're refusing to humble themselves before God. That's Belshazzar. Well, what do you mean? To humble yourself before God is you submit to his authority about reality. The reality is God created the male and female. She doesn't know that. She's defying that along with a lot of people in our society, they won't bow a knee to the authority of what God says is a male and what's, uh, she, uh, what he says is a female. What else? How about this guy that keeps racking up uh, awards by beating girls? What is he doing? He's refusing to submit himself before God. There's no doubt about that. But what about the NCAA? It's just not just him, it's the NCAA who have lost their minds. The NCAA is promoting this, by the way. In fact, in one of her, one, sorry, one of his competitions, he came in fifth and he tied another gal in fifth. This is the NCAA finals, right? And so the NCAA came to him and her and says, look, we only got one trophy. So we're going to give the trophy to the guy so he can, you know, promote himself or whatever. And we'll mail your trophy to the girl later on. You don't get to stand on the standing blocks. Only he does. It's evil. That's the NCAA. The NCAA is refusing to humble themselves before God and letting a, a guy destroy women's sports. And you're gonna see more of that. Now, here's a guy who does humble himself to God. Okay? DeSantis. God bless him because he's fighting for kids in Florida. And this curriculum transparency bill, they call it the, the say gay bill or whatever. It's not. He wants parents to know if your kid's going to start being groomed by a preschool teacher and a, a elementary teacher, the parents need to be notified and told what in the world you're doing. So the whole uh, leftists are coming against this. Here's a guy who humbles himself before God. Why? He acknowledges that this is sin. Here's another group that doesn't acknowledge God. They refuse to humble themselves. These are teachers and counselors from school, okay? They made a video. This is how clueless they are. 
They're like Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, they're like Belshazzar. Belshazzar is being attacked by the Medes and Persians and they're all around Babylon and he's having a drunken orgy feast. These people are so out of touch. Film themselves in their classrooms, look at the flags behind them, and say, blank you to anyone that's anti-LGBT. And they make a video about it. Are you insane? Yes, because again, they got put on administrative leaves. These people never get fired, but they got administrative leave. Do you think they care? I don't know. Are they crazy? Yes, they are. What's the handwriting on the wall about public school? How about this guy? Dave Ramsey helps people get out of debt. Makes the most idiotic statement the other day. Makes a social justice, social gospel statement says that he's at Elevation Church, which he shouldn't be at. Elevation Church is apostate. Anyway, he says, it's better to leave a $400 tip to a waitress than leave them the gospel. Uh, hey, Dave, where did you get your social justice, social gospel mentality? You need to stuff it back into the sack it came from, from the Marxist ideology. You're tampering with the gospel. The gospel is the power that saves people. Not $400. So let's play this out, Dave Ramsey. If you're so smart theologically to make a statement like that, let's play this out, Dave Ramsey. Giving someone $400, who gets the credit in that? The person does, not God. Second, what does the person do with that $400? We don't know. They probably spend it within a day or two. Third, are they still going to hell? Exactly. Dave, when you decide to trample on the blood of Christ and you decide to trample on the gospel in an apostate church, we would better have you just shut your mouth because the gospel is the only thing that's going to save anybody. Now, I, they're going to say, you don't know the context. I do know the context. The context was is people leave a gospel track and don't tip. Get it. But you don't go to the extreme and say, well, then don't leave a gospel track and leave $400. That's wrong too. If you're gonna tip, tip properly and then give a gospel track. End of story. That's what he should have said. But somehow the mantle of social justice and social gospel has fallen on Dave Ramsey. He's not humbling himself before God. Only thing that changes people is the gospel. Look what he says to Belshazzar. Although you knew this. You know what Daniel's saying? Hey, look, hey, dude, we know from historical records that Belshazzar served about a couple years before Nebuchadnezzar died. He was in the cabinet. He saw what his grandpa did. He knew the stories about what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He totally got it. He knew the history and he knew the prophecies of Daniel. This guy, when Daniel says it, this means that this guy sinned against God with a high hand, with full knowledge. Now, that's different than just sinning and making a mistake. When you sin and you know better, oh, you're on a whole nother ballgame. Do you realize in the Old Testament, there was not a sacrifice for sinning with a high hand? When you sinned against knowledge, there was no sacrifice for it in the Old Testament. That's how serious it was. And yet he's doing that. And the same thing is true today. But Jesus warned about this. Well, let me ask you this question. 
Who bears more responsibility? The garden variety pagan in Bakersfield who dies and goes to hell versus the person in a village along the Amazon basin around, uh, uh, on the Amazon River who's never seen the light of day, that person dies and goes to hell. Who gets a more severe hell? It's the guy in Bakersfield. Why? Because the guy in Bakersfield had light that the other guy didn't. What light? There's a church on every corner. I can go to Walmart and buy a Bible for a buck, or even the Dollar Tree, I can buy a buck for a Bible. There's TV. You can hear the gospel on the TV. You can hear the truth on the TV. You can hear it on podcasts, all these other things that are afforded to Americans. And because of that, those who have more knowledge will have a more severe judgment. I didn't say it. Jesus did. Here's what he said. Here's where Jesus did his northern ministry between Capernaum, Chorazim, and Bethsaida. Okay? Capernaum was his headquarters. That's where he established his headquarters. But the majority of his ministry happened in between these three cities. But what happened? Many of the people who saw him and saw the miracles rejected him. And guess what he said about this, about sinning against knowledge? Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you. This is oive in Hebrew. Oive, which means a judgment is coming. Oive. Chorazin, oive Bethsaida. For if the mighty works would have done, been, were done in you, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, these are Gentile pagan countries, right? They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Wow. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven. How was Capernaum exalted to heaven? Messiah had his headquarters there. He was doing his ministry right there in front of all of them. Will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Oh, wow. So what he is saying is this. Those who have more light and reject it will get more penalties in the lake of fire. They'll have a more severe torment in a lake of fire. So what we see is degrees of punishment. He said this. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed these things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. The key in understanding this is what America and what Western society has been afforded. Western society has as its basis the Judeo-Christian value system, and we're now rejecting it. Because of that, Americans who do not get saved will have a more stricter judgment. They will be beaten with more blows rather than few. And that goes for any Western society that has rejected its Judeo-Christian foundations. 
That's what Jesus is saying. It's not pretty, but it is the truth. Because when you sin against knowledge, that's what God holds you accountable for, is you knew better. You knew better and you did it. And then he goes on and he says, and you lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. So you actually challenged him. Not only did you sin with a high hand and you knew better, you challenged God to stop you. If God is so powerful, then stop him. So you understand, he, why did he go to the temple articles and the bulls rather than any other articles from other gods and, and people groups that they had conquered? No, he specifically targets the Hebrew God. It's satanic and he knows He knows better, and that's why he's doing it. And so with that, he's challenging God. Here's what he mistakenly thinks, and this is what people out in the world think, that God is slack in his judgment. He hasn't stopped me. I keep doing what I'm doing, and I'm rolling, and where is God? So they they misinterpret his slackness for weakness. And you and I know his slackness is due to allowing them to repent, not willing that any should perish. But they misinterpret that and say, God won't stop me. Do you think Klaus Schwab thinks God's going to stop him? No, Bill Gates, George Schwab. No, they don't think that God's going to come in and stop them. They don't, but he will. When he's ready, he will. But see, in their mindset, they just keep doing it and they think, I'm getting away with it. I'm getting away with it. What is this God of the Bible? I'm not getting struck by lightning. And then what they don't understand, that judgment comes and it's too late. That's what's happened to him. He's been rolling like this for so long, he thinks he's he's, he's impervious to it. He's totally surrounded by an army and he's out of his mind thinking that God won't do anything to him. And it's been predicted. Here's how our culture is lifting themselves up against God right now. So Planned Parenthood, that evil organization, now is sending ice cream trucks, and instead of giving ice cream to kids, give condoms to kids. Yeah, try that out in one for size. A condom ice cream truck. It's disguised to look like an ice cream truck, but it's not. It's all they do is give out condoms. That's the new low for Planned Parenthood. You talk about lifting themselves up against the Lord, that's what they're doing. How about this guy? Sam Allery calls conservatives who oppose gay marriage cranky. We're, you and I are just cranky. Just cranky. Jesus must be cranky, right? God must be cranky. But gay rights activists are lovely. Oh, that's Isaiah 5. What is right is wrong and wrong is right. What is he doing? Lifting himself against the Lord, denying it. They have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have now profaned that which was sacred. We talked about that last week. But he's saying, look, these are holy items and you profaned it. That's what they're doing today. There's no different. What's the handwriting on the wall? They take that which is sacred and profane it. Whether it's marriage, family, sex, whatever it might be, they profane it and they don't care. They want to do it. So Disney is one of the main purveyors of this, along with the media, along with Hollywood, along with education. But I want you to see what's happening. Disney has not only been full woke, they're full LGBT and full groomers now. That's what they are now. And a leaked video that I'm gonna show you explains that they, these executives at Disney have been purposely going 
to the queer ideology have been purposely putting in characters that are gay or transsexual or whatever. And they talk about bringing them to now the the main characters being that way. The new cartoon that Disney produced called Red or something like that, I don't watch it and I'm not going to, but people have done the research and said that this girl who becomes a panda, there's a scene that hints of masturbation. And they don't care. Disney doesn't care. They want to groom your kids. Watch, watch what they say. It's not me saying it. It's they say, they're saying it. Last summer, we, we Disney executives all of the um, gendered greetings in relationship to our lives feels. So we no longer say ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Um, we, we've trained, we, we've provided training for all of our, our cast members in, in relationship to that. So now they know it's, it's hello everyone or hello friends. We, we are in the process of changing over those, those recorded messages. And so many of you are probably familiar when we brought the fireworks back to the Magic Kingdom. We no longer say ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we say dreamers of all ages. I'm, I'm here as a mother of, of two queer children, actually. Um, uh, one transgender child. Um, um, and one pansexual child, um, and and also as a leader, many 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 LGBTQIA characters in our stories, and 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 yet we don't have enough leads um, and narratives in which gay characters just just get to be characters. On my little pocket of like you know proud family Disney TVA. Um, the showrunners were super welcoming Meredith Roberts and like the, the, our leadership over there has been so welcoming to like my, like not at all secret gay agenda. And so like, I, I feel like I felt like it was, I mean, like maybe it was that way in the past, but I guess like something must've happened in the last, like, like they are turning it around. They're going hard. Let's have these two characters kiss. Let's in the background. Like I was just, Wherever I could, just basically adding queerness to, like, the, if you see anything queer in the show, I'm proud of them. But, like, I, I just was like, no one would stop me and no one was trying to stop me. We're also reacting from the reality that when they can erase you, when they can criminalize your existence, when they can demonize who you are, the next step is to criminalize you and take your kids. And we're already seeing that in Texas. So the slippery slope between these ugly messages, um, you know, emanating from legislative leaders in our state and then amplified by our governor, whose spokesperson immediately began calling everyone who opposed this bill uh, groomers, a.k.a. pedophiles. Yeah, Yeah, um, I've had the privilege of working with the Moon Girl team for the last two years, and they've been really open to exploring queer stories. And so I put together like a tracker of our background characters to make sure that we have like the full breadth of expression And uh, we got into a very similar conversation, Carrie, of like, oh, all of our like gender nonconforming characters are in the background. The main characters that way is the idea. Now, here's right out of their mouth. This was a leaked video. It wasn't supposed to get out, yet it made mainstream. And now here we are. They're telling you what they're doing behind the scenes. That they're putting queer characters, they're going to make them the main characters, and we're going to change the way we do Disney. Okay? What's the handwriting on the wall? What's the handwriting on the wall? Do you see the handwriting on the wall? Yeah. You can't trust these people. These are not family friendly. They're there to destroy your kids. 
That's the main objective. They want them to be all transgendered out and stuff like that. Okay, whatever then. So something must end. Anytime you see the handwriting on the wall, something must end for you. You see what I'm saying? Now, there's been satire now since they came out and this has all been out. Uh, these people have made these the proposals of what probably the new movies will be for Disney, right? And again, it's a satire, but I want you to think about this. When reality matches satire, then you're in an upside-down world. So again, this is satire, but watch. They're going to make movies something like this, okay? The new Little Mermaid, it's Little Merman. That'll be the new thing, probably. Again, this is satire, but this is what they're doing. They're changing everything. How about Cinderella? Maybe they ought to try that one, right? A new Disney princess. Or how about Brocahannes? Yeah, yeah, we, you know, he's wearing dresses. A new Disney princess. How about we teach Snow White from the dwarves about her Snow White privilege, right? Why don't the dwarves tell Snow White, you have white privilege? Okay, I guarantee you that's coming somewhere in the picture. How about Aladdin next? We just don't know. We just don't know. We don't know if it's a girl or a guy, so we'll just Aladdin next. Now, <coughs> that's satire. But guys, it's coming. That's a joke, but it's real. That's what they're preparing for. Unbelievable, huh? Now, here's, here's front and center about resisting God. This is the bill I want you to be aware of, AB 2223. Uh, Not only a pro-abortion bill, no doubt about that, it removes all civil criminal penalties for killing babies born alive and under any circumstances. The bill seeks to legitimize the killing of hours old or even week old infants. We are on the level of Israel when they were sacrificing their children to Moloch in the valley of Gehenna. We're on that level now. If this passes, we're killing kids outside the womb now. You think, what's the handwriting on the wall? Something's going to end. Something's going to end. God ain't going to let this go on for too long. Something's ending. Here's a little application about us truth tellers. You're a truth teller, I'm a truth teller. Taking that which is sacred and profaning it. The mistake that you and I can do, and it's unintentional, we don't mean to do it, but we have to know this principle, that truth is sacred right now. Okay, that's what you have from God. You have this truth in you, and your job is to get it out, but you must protect it. Now, we need to state the truth, but when you're dealing with an individual, an individual, okay, and they keep rejecting that truth, and they deny it, then quit giving them the truth. You're taking that which is sacred and allowing them to profane it. How so? Do not get what is holy, the truth, to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, unclean animals, that resist you, right? Lest what? They trample them under their feet. They're going to take your truth and create sacrilege and trample that truth under their feet. Just like Belshazzar did with the, the items from the temple. And then what do they do? And they will turn and tear you in pieces. Then they will persecute you back. 
So in our day and time, the applications, we got to get the truth out. But if you're talking to an individual that says, I reject what you're saying, I quit, quit talking to them. It's not about information. Just stop it because now you're allowing them to desecrate that truth. Don't do that. And then they're going to come after you. And you have praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, and iron, wood, stone, which you do not see nor hear or know. And the God, look what it says, who holds your breath in his hands and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified him. You fool, you worship stones and statues and stupid idolatry, but you don't even realize the breath that's coming in and out of your mouth is coming from God. God is sustaining your life and all your ways. That would be said to Putin, said to Macron, said to Biden, said to any of these world leaders, don't you know you're alive because God allows the breath to keep coming in and out of your mouth? That's what God controls. That's what God sustains. And they won't do that. Instead, they would go to idols. So what does our, what is a, our global elites go to? What is the idols? Money, power, prestige. That's it. That's all you have to know. What are they after? What do the globalists want? Money, power, prestige. That's their idols. And they themselves are an idol. Then the fingers of the hand were sent uh, from him. Daniel's saying, the hand is God's hand. We, saw, we, we said last week, it's Messiah's hand. And this writing was written. And this is the inscription that was written. So the writing that's on the wall is mene, mene, tekel, ufarsin. Okay? Now, in and of itself, mene means um, numbered. Okay? So it's no, it means numbered. Tekel means weighed. And ufarsin means divided. But again... Even if you, you, if you could translate the words, you still didn't know what that meant. And so this is where Daniel comes in with his wisdom to interpret what does uh, numbered, weighed, and divided mean. So then well, let's watch what he says. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Again, something must end in order for some good to happen. And so the idea here is, When you look at the world and you see what's going on, has God numbered it? Is its number up? You look at the, our country, you look at Western society, you look at the people of the, wor- of the world. Is a number being given? And what I mean by that is their number up. Are we close to their number being up is the idea. Okay, just keep thinking through this, okay? Next, Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Now, what it's referring to is his behavior and his actions, okay? That stem from his pride, stem from his attitudes. Now, what we understand from Scripture, there is God's scale. He has a scale. The scale is not for salvation, okay? Salvation is by faith alone. But God does have a scale, And what does he weigh on this scale? Because he's using, you've been weighed in my balances and found wanting. What does he weigh? Okay. Well, 1 Samuel reveals a little bit of this. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. So quit being prideful. For the Lord is the God of knowledge. God knows everything about what you're doing. He's omniscient. And by his actions, by him, actions are weighed. 
and let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. Okay, so what are we talking about here? Okay, not talking about salvation. So when God puts an unbeliever on the scales, what he is looking at is the believer's works. But if it's not for salvation, then what is it for? It's the idea that according to that unbeliever's works, God will decide how severe their judgment will be, not only in this life, but in the next. And so this is where the idea of of, uh, degrees of punishment in the lake of fire come from. That, yes, people who don't believe in Jesus go to hell, but some will be beaten with more blows than few. It's an idea of a degree of punishment. That's what the scales are for. And those scales will be used at the great white throne judgment. Now let's go to believers. Believers will also have the scales used on them. Again, it's not for salvation because salvation is by faith alone. But then tell me what, Brandon, do believers do when God puts the scales on them? The scales are to measure your good works as a believer. And those good works will be put on that scale on whether or not you receive rewards. So what you have to understand, there are degrees of rewards for believers. We all get there through Christ, but different believers will have different rewards based on their works. So I'm talking about rewards. So Jesus said this, or Sir Paul said this about Jesus' throne. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body. Notice what we're receiving. According to what? According to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's what, what, what we have to think about. When we're before the throne of Jesus at the Bema seat, he will determine our rewards based on our good works. Are there bad Christians? Yes. Are there good Christians? Yes. The bad Christians don't produce any works. And therefore, their works are burned up. There's nothing to reward them for. Good Christians serve the Lord, especially in times like this, and they will be rewarded for it. So that's where the balancing scales come from. So according to Daniel, Belshazzar had been weighed, and he doesn't come up. His time is near. He's going to die, is the idea. And he's going to go to hell, basically. Okay, Perez. This is another term interchangeably that can be used for uh, euphorsin. And it means the same thing, divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now, this is interesting. If you take the Aramaic or the Hebrew word of Perez, which means divided, if you take the vowels out, the two E's there in Perez, because in, in, in Hebrew, it's just P-R-S, okay? In Hebrew, there's no vowels in Hebrew. But if you stick in another set of vowels, guess what you have? Persia. So it is, it's like a double meaning. What God is saying is your kingdom's divided and it's going to be divided by the Medes and Persians because Persia is in the word itself. And so basically that's what will happen. The Medes and Persians will take over that night. And Cyrus the Great is the king that will take over. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a chain around a gold around his neck and made a proclamation concerning that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Are you out of your mind? Are you out of your mind, Belshazzar? You're going to reward Daniel and he's telling you it's over tonight. 
you see how out of the touch they are? It's like when you look at the leaders of the, they're so out of touch. Let's just get off of all fossil fuels and we'll go to wind and solar. Are you out of your mind? Yes. Yes, that's the idea. You are out of your mind. You're crazy. And he's rewarding Daniel. This guy's so nuts. He doesn't realize he's an hour away of getting his neck sliced. One hour. By the way, believe it or not, the historical records are so accurate on this night. We know it's a Saturday night. I, think, I can't remember the date. It's in October. It's a Saturday night. And Belshazzar is killed at 5.39 p.m. That's how accurate we know that this event happened, okay? So here's what I want you to think about. And that's according to Dr. Harold Honer. Daniel is giving this prophecy one hour before his neck is sliced. So at 4.39, Daniel's explaining this. Now, what's the key significance? The one hour is the significance. What's ending? Old Babylon is ending in one hour. One hour. Keep that in mind. Hold on. I don't want you to miss that one. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. Neck, they, cut it, they, they, they killed him. Do you, know you know how it happened? Darius the Mede, this is true, received the kingdom. He is a general under Cyrus the Great, by the way, being about 62 years old. So remember, that's the Medes and Persians working together. So in this sense, Darius the Mede took Babylon for Cyrus the Great. Okay, it's totally accurate, totally historical. But you know how they took it? Belshazzar thought that the walls of Babylon would protect him. Those walls of Babylon, you could get four chariots on the top and you have chariot races. They were so wide. They were impregnable. No way you're coming through the walls. But Darius the Mede is pretty clever. He knew he can't attack Babylon through its walls. So you know what he did? He realized that there's a, the, the Euphrates River goes right underneath the city of Babylon. It goes right underneath. The, 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 it goes uh, through the middle of the city. He says, well, this is gonna be easy. What we need to do then is divert the water and we'll divert it to another place and then the riverbed will go down, the water won't be there and we'll be able to cross underneath Babel, underneath the walls as we go where the river flowed underneath it. So that's what he did. He diverted the water, the Medes and Persians come underneath and there's no battle. There's absolutely no battles, no fighting. They came in, right from the center and took control of, the, of Babylon in one hour. Now, here's what they do. They go to this drunken feast orgy, Darius the Mede. They actually go into where they're having this feast. Now, we don't know where Daniel's at. Maybe he got out of Dodge. I don't know, but he's not there. And they go, they go in, they walk in, and all these drunken fools are there, and, and along with Belshazzar. And they just go up to Bel, Belshazzar, boom, slice his neck, and that's it. It's over. It's just over. In, in that quick, Medes and Persians have taken over now. Why is that significant? Because a good will come out of this. You're like, well, what is the big deal, man, with Medes and Persians and Babylonians? No, no, no. There's a spiritual lesson. 
the reason we see the handwriting in the wall and we interpret it as, as this is finished, this is over, we interpret that and be able to move on so the good can happen. That's why you let things go. That's why you move to the next season for the good to come out of the next season. It can't, the good can't happen unless you let it go. So what's the good, Brandon? Ah, it was predicted by God through Daniel that after Babylon will come the Medes and Persians. But then another prophet, 150 years before Daniel, the prophet Isaiah predicts this. He predicts a man by the name of Cyrus who will come in and free Israel to go back into their land. 150 years before the man even exists. And he's named, he's named by Isaiah. Well, guess what? Darius the Mede works for Cyrus the Great, who is the one that's named by Isaiah. And guess what Cyrus does? He is in favor of Israel and signs the decree to allow Israel to leave Babylon and go back to Israel and re-inhabit it and build Jerusalem, build the temple, and build the walls, all because of Cyrus the Great. Now, let me add one more good that came out of this. Daniel says, and you'll see this later on, that the issuing of the decree to allow Israel to go back will start the timeline for when Messiah shows up. So when Cyrus issues that decree, it starts. And Daniel predicted 490 years. And he predicted that at the 483rd year, Messiah will come on the scene. And it happened. And guess who was there to meet Messiah? It was the Magi who were trained by Daniel. Daniel had told them at the issuing of the decree, we'll start the countdown. And so that's why at Messiah's birth, the Magi from Babylon show up. Where is the king born to Israel? How did they know that? Because the countdown had started with Cyrus's decree that Messiah would now appear, and he did. And yet, the religious leaders of Israel didn't count the time. That's the good that comes out of the bad. You have to finish something in order to get to the good. Babylon has ended. Now the Medes and Persians have come and are going to allow the Jews to go back. Beautiful. That's how it works. That's the principle. So let me ask you this on the application of this. Are you seeing the handwriting on the wall, not only in geopolitical politics, but in your personal life? That's where we have to get to. What is God saying in the handwriting on the wall? And remember, the handwriting on the wall will say something needs to end right now. Something needs to stop. You got to go on to this new season of life and you're stuck and you can't go on and experience the good if you stay stuck. What is keeping you there? Why don't you release it? What are you afraid of? The unknown? God has it. He has good for you on the next, uh, the next path, the next season. It also brings responsibility. If God shows you the handwriting on the wall, not only for geopolitics, but your personal life, what are you supposed to do with that? What are you going to do with it? Because you should, you should act. 
Think about this on a geopolitical level. They're going digital. What are you going to do about that? Wait a second. Oh, I can't stop. No, no, no. But can you warn people? Can you warn them that this is heading to the tribulation? That's how close we are. Can you at least do that? Look what BlackRock president says. The entitled generation, the millenniums, that has never had to sacrifice, they will soon face shock due to major shortage put on your seatbelts. And in the article, he goes on, they're gonna, you're going to see food reduced uh, in your, store, your grocery store. Have you went to the store and found food? I, I, I can't find certain foods anymore. It's going to get worse. And he says these millennials are going to come apart at the seams because they have never grown up in an environment where they have to sacrifice. President of BlackRock. What are we going to do about that? What about America? Why is America not mentioned in prophecy? If we are, we're the young lines of Tarsus and we sit back and watch this whole thing go on. Are we seeing the handwriting on the wall about America? Are we denying it? Oh, this can never happen to my country. They can never go global. They can never go to, they just saying they are. And Biden, did you notice that Biden had the same memo? Did you notice they used the word, we're at an inflection point. We're at an inflection point. It's like, who gave you the talking points? Who gave you the talking? How can you all say the same thing in your speeches? Because somebody's given them the memo. What's that mean for America? What then, if that's happening to my country, what am I supposed to do? Well, you better stand for the truth. You better fight all the way because this is what they're doing. Look, we're going to go down, but I'm going down fighting. You got you to do everything you can to stop this because you're going to be accountable for that. God says, I told you, I told you, and what did you do about this? Look what's happening here in our schools. What is God, what's God handwriting on the schools? Look at this. Public school nurse, good gal, she says, I have an 11-year-old female student on puberty blockers and a dozen identifying as non-binary. A dozen? All but two keeping this, what, as a secret from their parents? And what? With whose help? The help of the teachers and the help of the social workers and the school administration. Oh. What's the handwriting in the wall that God's saying about public schools? These people are after your kids. If you don't get the message, it's on you. There's an article, public schools are cesspools of debauchery. Get your kids out now before it's too late, they say. How much more do we have to see about these crazy public schools? How much more do we have to see about the medical and scientific community? How much more do we have to see about our culture? We say, it's jacked up, man. These people are lost their minds. How much more do we have to see before we make those statements? Oh, it's going to come back. No, you, and, and, and here's the thing. You have to fight it. You have to resist it. Biden, DOJ, threatens states seeking to protect children from puberty blockers and genital mutilation surgery. You know where they're going with this? Without parental consent, they're going to pr provide that services to your children in public schools. Without your consent. Just like they can vaccinate your kids in some of these schools in L.A., they're vaccinating kids without telling the parents. Giving them pizza so they can get jabbed and not telling the parents. You understand the schools are not disclosing anything anymore to parents. It's a problem. How about this new movement? 
California City approves program to provide transgender, non-binary residents with guaranteed income. Oh, and who's going to pay for this one? Oh, the taxpayers? Yeah. So if I claim to be transgender or non-binary, I get a a guaranteed income. Are you out of your mind? Yes. Yes. The world's going global. What are you going to do about it? Well, Brandon, I can't do anything. You're right. But what can you do? Can you warn people? Can you let them know this is going on? Do you understand they're going to a new world order? You're going to have to be able to tell people that. Now, here's the thing I want to bring out. Understand that what happened in Babylon at this time is a prefiguring of what will happen in the future. It's a typology, which means it foreshadows something bigger. Do you understand that Babylon right now, Neo-Babylon, is being rebuilt right now? It's being built economically, politically, and religiously. All three components are here, and Babylon's being built. Do you understand that the Antichrist will rule and reign from Babylon in the future? And now it's being built, the new world order. Remember what I said about the hour? The good news is it's, it's, it's going to happen, but God's going to do something with it. It's not going to last very long. Remember, when Daniel makes his prediction, an hour later, his, Belshazzar's neck is sliced. One hour So in Neo-Babylon, when the Antichrist rules and reigns from there, guess what Jesus will do to Babylon? If you read Revelation 17 and 18, it talks about the whore. It talks about the Babylonian system. And it says, first of all, I will destroy Babylon in one day. And then it redefines it even more and says, I will destroy Babylon in one hour as I did with Belshazzar in old Babylon, and his kingdom came to an end in one hour, so I will destroy the Antichrist kingdom in one hour, and there won't be a fight because I will just speak it, and they will dissolve with their tongues in their mouth dissolving first and their eyes in their socket dissolving before their corpse hits the ground, Zechariah 14. There's no fight when Jesus comes back. Ends just like that. Isn't that cool? You see the parallels? Let's talk about this. The handwriting wall signals when something is coming to an end, obviously. We need to see this. Okay, what what are we supposed to do? Something needs to be given up. Something needs to be left behind. Something needs to be changed is what God's trying to say to us. You know, whatever that might be. What is that right now that he's saying that to you? What is the handwriting on the wall? Because the good can only begin when the bad ends. You understand, if we're going to go to the next season of life, what the Lord has for us, it's requiring us to grow. If you stay in the old season, you won't grow. You've got to move on because the good of growth happens. If you want more freedom than you have now spiritually, you've got to move on. You can't stay stuck. If you want to do more things for the Lord, don't stay in the old season. You now have to go, go into this one so you can expand your ministry. Don't let yourself hold you back because unfortunately, if you hold yourself back and you stay stuck, you actually start getting worse. And the pain you feel 
for not moving forward because you're afraid of more pain, the pain you feel will turn non-redemptive. See, there's good pain and then there's bad pain. Good pain is when I step forward by faith and experience the new pain and learn how to cope with it and deal with it. That's redemptive pain. It actually helps you. It conforms you to the image of Christ. You fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. But if you decide to stay back here, that pain you feel right now in this old season will be non-redemptive. It will actually hurt you. It will destroy you because you're stuck. God doesn't want that for you. He's saying, end it so you can experience the good. Let me give an illustration. I had two friends I grew up with. And the principle is alive and well in their, their lives. They both are dead now. And um, one of my friends, you know, after high school and even during high, they were getting into drinking a lot and partying, the whole thing, right? They're, they're into that. And they kept doing it, kept doing it. And eventually... They were drinking and driving, and then they slammed their car into a tree and killed my friend. So what's the principle? They wouldn't let the bad end so that the good could happen. They stayed in the bad, and it killed them. Okay? My other friend I went to school with kept hanging around drug addicts. He, too, was on drugs. Stayed around them. Around, and there's a lot of gang activity around drugs and stuff like that. Got involved in all of them. Wouldn't stop. He wouldn't end it. The handwriting was on the wall. You keep doing drugs, you're going to die. You keep hanging out with gang members, you're going to die. And just like my other friend, you keep drinking and driving, you're going to die. And so what happened? Some deal went bad. They stabbed him to death. You see the principle. God had good for both of their lives. Marriage, family, serving the Lord all their lives, or whatever it could be, getting saved, all that stuff, all that good stuff that could have happened. The reason the good stuff didn't happen is because they wouldn't stop. They just wouldn't stop. And the handwriting was on the wall, and they wouldn't let it go. They're like Belshazzar having a drunken orgy feast and surrounded by armies. And they never experienced that good. I can't forget that. It sticks in my mind of what life they missed. What, all that God had for them because they wouldn't read the handwriting on the wall and they wouldn't stop. I pray we're able to have enough guts to move on. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for what we can learn from your passages in Scripture. Help us, Father, as believers to see the handwriting on the wall, not only on a geopolitical level, but on a personal level, Father. What are you, what are you wanting us to let go of? What are you wanting us to move from? What are you wanting, Father? We want to do that so we can experience that good that you have promised for us. I pray, Father, someone here that hasn't come to faith Christ offers a new life, a new good, the abundant life, the eternal life, and they can leave their old life and become a new creation in Christ. Speak to that heart right now that hasn't done that.
to realize they're stuck. They're not getting out of that hole, but only Christ can free them because he's paid for their sins on a cross, was buried and rose on the third day and gives everlasting life to anyone who wants it, anyone who will simply believe. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.